Hello again. Today's guest, Rachel Pye Jones, was introduced to me by one of my listeners named Judith. So Judith forwarded me an essay that Rachel wrote titled Bread Baked in the Heat of Hell. And Judith said she'd love to hear more from Rachel here on the podcast. The piece was beautifully written, and it truly transported me to a moment where community, cooking, and religion intersected for Rachel in Djibouti, Africa, which has been her home for almost 20 years. In Djibouti, Rachel has raised three children in a cross-cultural setting that really couldn't be any more different than how she was raised in a small and insulated Midwestern town. As Rachel has sought community in Djibouti, she has questioned every premise of her own religion, Christianity, and the prevailing values of American culture. Rachel just released a book titled Pillars, named for the five pillars of Islam, with the tagline, How My Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. I did read this book after we conducted this interview, and I highly recommend it to you. Rachel's experiences, along with her unflinching introspection and very raw honesty, highly qualify her to give me advice on something which is very important to me, and that is how to lovingly and effectively engage with friends, neighbors, and acquaintances of other cultures and belief systems. So I am so thankful that Rachel is here today to share more of her experiences and particularly what they can teach us about relating with our neighbors and our own belief systems. One more note before we begin, I do want to thank Judith for recommending Rachel, and I also want to let you know, listeners, that I love it when you alert me to people you'd like to hear from on the Storied Recipe podcast. I have been receiving more and more pitches from publicists to host their clients, but truly, I am much more likely to take your guest suggestions than a pitch from a publicist. You guys know what this podcast is about. You know what you want to hear. There's no podcast without you, the listening community, and I really do love to hear from you. So you can always reach out to me at Becky at the storiedrecipe.com, and I would love to hear from you. And now here is Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Becky. First of all, Rachel, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. So let's, for listeners, just give a little bit of context. You are in a friend's house. They have a generator because the electricity went out in Djibouti. First of all, am I saying Djibouti, correct? Yeah, Djibouti, and the city name is even Djibouti, so it's Djibouti, Djibouti. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it really easy for me. (laughs) Yep. Good. So you're there. Is that a pretty common thing in Djibouti? You know, in recent years, it has not been so common. And if it does go out, it would just be like for five minutes, once a day, maybe. Mm -hmm. But today it's been a little bit in and out all day. So I was worried there'd be an issue this afternoon. And uh, we don't have a generator. So that's the problem. In the past, it would be out for hours at a time. And it was just, it's pretty miserable because there's no fans going. I mean, even right now, I'm just drenched in sweat. (laughs) Oh, yeah. um, I don't want to have a fan on, you know, blowing around the sound. But yeah, so it's a little bit strange that it's been so bad today. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Well, <laughs> again, thanks for making it on anyhow. And when the fans and the electricity go out, tell me how hot it is there. <laughs> yeah, right now it's getting to the hot season. And so today it's probably about 100 degrees, okay. the real real feel temperature because the humidity is quite high. And so... In the summertime, it, the temperature can actually get up to 120. 
Wow. And then you have sometimes high humidity, sometimes very low, super dry, so dry and hot that your skin starts to crack. Wow. Um, just depends on the time of year. But in the winter, so like November, December, January, February are perfectly beautiful, 80 okay. degrees or so. So it's getting hot. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about where Djibouti is in Africa. Place it for us. Sure. Djibouti is in the Horn of Africa. And if I had a video, I would show you with my hands. I kind of make a figure seven with yep. one hand and th that seven is Somalia on the Eastern coast. Uh -huh. And then Djibouti is shaped like a Pac-Man right at the top of the seven of Somalia. So Djibouti opens up its mouth kind of into the Gulf of Tajura and then up eventually to the Gulf of Aden where the Red Sea and okay. the Gulf of Aden meet. Okay. Um, so it's the very edge of the Eastern part of Africa, the closest point to the Middle East, the Arab Peninsula. Got it. Okay. And it is not landlocked. It's a coastal country. Correct. So we're bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, and then the Red Sea up top. Okay. Tell me about the land there, the geography, and what that means for agriculture. It pretty much means no agriculture. So okay. we are very desert. Um, there's a even a large swath of volcanic lava fields. And so, you know, nothing's going to grow there. Really? At least not for a million years, maybe until the lava all becomes really rich. Ash. Yeah, yeah. Right. But right now it's it's still fairly fresh lava. I mean, it's hard. But there's a lot of rocky territory, some sand. Like um, we have some of the flattest desert expanses on the planet. And wow. so there's a place called the Grand Barra that's just, as far as I can see, total flat sand. Wow. Um, and then right by the sea. And so it's very difficult to grow things here. It takes a lot of water and that is hard to get enough water. And the yeah. water content, especially here in the city where we're close to the sea, the water table is so high that it's kind of salty. Yes. And so even that makes it hard to grow things. Up in the northern part of the country, there is slightly cooler temperatures and some mountainous areas that they do grow a few things. And so once in a while at the market or in the grocery store, you'll see some tomatoes or green beans advertised as special because they're made in Djibouti. And it really is special and they're kind of precious. And so we like to invest in that when we can. But yeah. most of the food comes in from outside. Okay. Okay. And it's interesting because not too far from the Middle East, the Middle East actually has wonderful agriculture, but I suppose because you're coastal versus having rivers come in, like rivers, you don't have those sides of the river that kind of are leaving the silt and all that to grow in. You just, you kind of have desert that just kind of crashes down into the sea. Right. Yeah. There really isn't rivers here. We went one time to tour what was pitched as a waterfall. Yeah. And it, it was actually a, a pipe that came out of the rocky oh. wall <laughs> and water was piped out from the city or from the country, the government. Wow. Um, not a waterfall. And so wow. there's no real fresh bodies of water that could promote agriculture. One of the other actual bodies of water that is here is called the Salt Lake. Hmm. And it's the lowest point on the continent. And it's salinated like the Dead Sea, it's even more salinated, more densely salinated than the Dead Sea. And so it's just, a, you, you can float in the water, you can't sink even when you try to. And so nothing again is going to grow there because of all that salt content. Right. And does anything live there? Can you eat seafood? Oh, not there. There's nothing in the, in the lake, no fish wow. or anything. People do live nearby, but they get their food from someplace else. And often they're nomadic people. So they will actually take their camel trains and bring them down to the lake and they'll hack out these bricks of salt mm -hmm. that then they will load onto the camels 
I can't remember how much, maybe 50 pounds or 50 kilos, something like that, full of salt blocks, which they will then take to northern Ethiopia and barter almost as if it was like money for, for goods and things to bring back to Djibouti. Wow. I think, again, for myself and probably most people that are going to be listening to this, it's crazy to think of a land where water is so scarce and then thinking on Ethiopia where salt is so precious. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yes. And you are a marathoner. I have done now four marathons. Yeah. Okay. And you train there. <laughs> I do. It's a little bit strange because it is so hot. I even started running here. I had not been a really? runner until I moved here. Yeah. Really? How do you manage that? You just do it. I just do it. And I, I do it slowly. I guess that's mm. what I say usually at this time of year already this morning on, I did a 10 K and every kilometer and a half or so I would stop to walk for a couple of minutes. I just have to. And then when it gets to be even hotter and hotter, I know that even every two or three minutes, I'm going to have to stop and walk. Or I have a camelback water carrier that I bring with me sometimes if I'm going over an hour and I will freeze it overnight. And so it's actually a solid block of ice on my back. I don't feel the coldness, you know, through my, through the bag, but the water then at least stays a little bit cold. Usually by the time I finish, it's all melted anyway, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on different techniques to, to do it. And I just had to, I've had to come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to get very fast. I'm not going to be fast. I just keep doing it. And that alone makes me feel pretty strong and tough just that I keep doing it. Uh, You have all of my admiration and awe (laughs) just that you do it. And I suspect you're faster than you say. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So if you were to go for a 10K run, like, did you say you just went yesterday? This morning, yeah. This morning, this morning. Okay. So if on that 10K run, can you maybe describe some of the things that you, of course, I don't want you to think that all of the listeners are Western or American, but many of us are. So if you, on your 10K run yesterday, what are maybe some of the things that you saw, some of the things that you smelled, some of the things that you heard that might be shocking or new to us? Yeah, so many things, probably almost everything. <laughs> You're like, that's um, the whole episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, though. Um, so usually I start early enough that the first thing I hear is the call to prayer, mm-hmm. which goes off just at sunrise, or even even the earlier call to prayer would be an hour before sunrise. And so depending on how long I'm intending to go, I can hear that. And there's mosques on you know, almost every street or lots of corners. And so you can hear this call to prayer coming very clearly in the morning. And then um, thinking of sounds at that time of day, there's also wild green parrots that will flit across and they have a real distinct call. And so I'll hear those. And then there's a a bread man. We call him the bread man, kind of Mm -hmm. like an ice cream truck man. (laughs) He pushes pushes a wooden cart and it's full of fresh baguettes Mm -hmm. in the morning. And then he honks the bicycle horn. And so to, you know, to announce to the neighborhood that he's coming with the baguettes. And so those Mm -hmm. are really the sounds that I hear almost on every run, I'll hear some of that. And then this morning I took off from my house and within about a a mile and three quarters or so, I am out in a new development area, but it's really bordering the desert and the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so I can see the sea and the sun rising and then the desert. Mm -hmm. And it, it runs parallel to a French military base, the airport and the US military base, which is here. And so it's really this interesting contrast of you know, vast expanse of nothing, of sea mm. and desert. And then on the other side, you have this, these big military complexes and airplanes landing and things like that. Mm. So mm. it's quite fascinating. And then 
more and more I'm seeing more people out running. So a lot of times it's foreigners, but more and more there's local people. And so that's been really fun to see over the years that I'm not the only one doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes, not quite so lonely, although some people enjoy the solitary aspect of running. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there must be something about Djibouti that makes it a useful military base. Mm -hmm. There's several countries have bases here, I think up to eight or nine. Really? Um, It's all about location. And Djibouti, the government is very open to foreign establishments and installments like that. And so Mm -hmm. the French had formally colonized Djibouti up until 1977. And so they've maintained a pretty significant presence. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. built their military base. It's called Camp Limonier. I believe it opened around 2000. I can't, Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but around that time. And uh, it's all about location. So any operations these countries are doing with piracy or in Somalia or even to the Middle East, they launch out of this part of the world. I see. So it's because of the proximity to the Middle East and just the kind of constant unrest there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, China also just opened a base here too. And so it's really interesting to think about all these countries that are sometimes in their own not violent conflict, but not always in agreement. And they're within, you know, five miles of each other with these military bases. Yeah, they really are kind of just jockeying for position in the world. Mm -hmm. And Djibouti's like ground zero for that. Yeah. Wow. What does that do to the development and the wealth of Djibouti? That's a good question because these bases do employ a lot of Djiboutians. Yeah. The, The French base in particular, because they're more rooted here, they have families here. So they're people are going to the grocery stores and they attend the local schools and things like that. Whereas the U S and the Chinese and the Japanese and all these other ones, it's just the military personnel. And so they don't have all of that infrastructure that comes around families. Um, And so they're pretty isolated. So in some ways I'm more impacted by the French than by the Americans because we can't even go on as civilians onto the U S base. And so we don't have, you know, access to some of the things they have there. They actually have a subway there. I've heard they have a Starbucks. I don't really know. Wow. Um, My eyebrows are shooting up to the ceiling here to hear that you're a citizen of the U.S. and can't go on the military base. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, they have even a store that has American products. And for me, we've been now in Djibouti since 2004, in the Horn of Africa since 2003. And I don't feel even really a desire or a need to go to Starbucks or to buy some of these American things. But it's interesting knowing that they're there. And actually my running path, I take out into the desert, like I mentioned, if I do a long run, I can loop around that base and I'm outside the desert by myself. And inside there's people running, but they're inside this big fencing and big security things, you know, and it's a very different experience. Yeah. A very different. And I would have to say very metaphorical. (laughs) (laughs) which really leads me, I think, perfectly into our next question. You're a writer by profession. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your, your husband does what? He runs an international school here. Okay. So your husband runs an international school. That was the impetus for you coming to Djibouti. Initially, he was actually working as a professor at the university in Somaliland across the border. Okay. And then in 2004, we came here and he continued teaching at the university until about 2016, when the the government had identified English language learning as a real significant need. And so they actually asked him if he would open an international school for pre-K through high school. And so we opened the doors then. 
Okay, so what I'm getting to here is that part of your work as a writer, you've written multiple books, a couple of cookbooks, and you also run this paid site that's called Do Good Better. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, the goal behind it. So that was kind of a COVID project for me, actually. Okay. I think as many writers, we're trying to figure out how to use our, our lockdown time. I'd had this this is just an idea or a feeling for a long time that people involved in humanitarian work or people involved in international faith-based work, development work, kind of these types of things. There's just a lot of problems and complications in that kind mm-hmm. of work and sort of the attitude that is inherent in it sometimes of, of mm-hmm. condescension or some racism that's definitely in it. Some ways in which, especially Westerners, get involved in places like this with this savior mentality. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've just wanted to have conversations for a long time in the open about some of the things that are not being done well mm-hmm. or some of the things that are being done well, but especially the ones that aren't. And how can we do better? We ha- we want to do good in the world. We don't want to just say it's not important mm-hmm. to do good or to cross cultures. I think there's a lot of value in that, but how do we do it well? Mm-hmm. And how do we do it thoughtfully and self-critically? And how do we change and grow both individually and in organizations and structurally? And so I started this newsletter on Substack. I also had wanted to experiment with a paid newsletter, which I hadn't done before. Mm-hmm. I was getting, to be honest, a little bit, it's it's a little bit of a, um, a hamster wheel, I think, that yeah. you're running a lot as a writer to get essays published and to get work out there. And I was looking for something more stable and grounded. Yeah. And so I wanted to experiment with the Substack newsletter model. And it's been really fun. I started it, I believe it was last May, my goal was to go through the whole year and see how it went and then probably continue if I enjoyed it. And I do plan to continue because I feel like the conversations we're having there on that, on some of the articles and things that I bring to that page have been really challenging and actually productive in helping people do good better. Good. Okay. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. One, and I promised everyone listening, we are getting to food, although my listeners are also (laughs) used to us talking about every topic under the sun. So this is great. And I'm so glad we're getting into this. My first question is, so I, you know, I kind of tossed out in a judgmental way as I sit in my (laughs) cool American home that I found it metaphorical that, you know, the Americans were running inside their base as you ran around it. So my initial thought was that this kind of writing was for people, people who were coming over and were staying insulated from the issues in Djibouti or just from the people. I shouldn't even say the issues from the people in Djibouti, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like really it was more from your one-on-one interactions with people who were living Mm -hmm. immersed in Djibouti, but doing the type of work that you and your husband were doing there or in the types of positions that you and your husband were in? Yeah, I think it could be valuable to both. I mean, mm-hmm. there, in some ways, the U.S. military, the actual personnel, for example, are not, they don't have freedom to get involved mm-hmm. outside the base, so it's not up to them. Mm-hmm. But even as they are trying to accomplish the work that they've come to do, I do think they could be encouraged by some of the things we talk about and how mm-hmm. to do that better how to do it with less condescension, less sort of Western arrogance. And then, yeah, the people who do come and are more, I guess I would say, actively involved in the community, just living their life in a neighborhood and, and going to school and doing things that way. Some people do hunker down still and sort of build walls around themselves, whether they are literal walls or metaphorical walls, to set, keep themselves separate from the culture, because it can be scary and intimidating yeah. if you don't speak the language or if you don't understand some of the cultural cues. And so 
Yeah. I do think a lot of times people who move cross-culturally can go to do their work, but they're not really dig into the culture. And I want to push people towards that because I think that can make the work more effective. Yes. Okay. So this is exactly what I was going to ask next is you've named and identified some of the attitudes that you feel are harmful to the Jabushans, but also just aren't necessarily a good place for foreigners to be, which are, you know, condescending attitudes, racist attitudes, white savior, those types of things, paternalistic, patronizing. Could you use some words maybe to name what you would find or to identify which you believe would be kind of an ideal way to be a foreigner living in Jabusha? Mm-hmm. Like what adjectives would describe that? I suppose there's all kinds, but I uh-huh. think some significant values that I find need to be foundational would be humility mm. and curiosity mm. and delight. I think those three, those have been really important words for me in the past few years. Well, ever since we came, I guess, but I haven't named them until more recently. Mm. If you do not come with a sense of humility, I don't know how you're going to learn or relate with local people. I mean, I think this became so obvious to me when I moved from, I'm from Minneapolis. And so Mm -hmm. I moved from the suburbs of Minnesota to Somaliland to a rural village where it was very clear from the first day that I had no clue what I was doing. I couldn't even walk without rolling my ankle. I kept catching my skirt in the cactus. I didn't know Mm -hmm. how to say a single sentence in Somali. And so if I didn't have a sense of humility, ability to laugh at myself and a willingness to learn from the people around me, I would have crashed and burned within a month. And then curiosity, I think that also then will inform the humility with what you can learn. And so learning how to ask good questions, not being embarrassed to ask mm. what, about what you don't know, I think that's really important. And then to learn about the local culture, not just a lot of times people think that culture is really just about food or even a surface level kind of food or it's about wearing the local clothing or speaking the language, but culture goes so deep Mm. into, you know, I can even think about like food. It's not just what they're eating, but why are they eating it? it? What's the grandma's story of that food? And what's the, you know, there's so much depth into that and there's folk tales around food and Mm. those kinds of things. And so the curiosity part is important. And then delight. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times foreigners go to a place and and like I mentioned earlier, they're afraid because it's so different Mm -hmm. or, they're even told maybe to be afraid like we were when we're moving to the Horn of Africa. People really expected us to be afraid Mm -hmm. and to still be afraid. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can turn that around to delight and just looking for the beauty and the goodness and the hospitality and generosity and reframing what we're looking for, I think we're going to be more likely to find that and see that. Mm. I appreciate that so much. And I think for those of us even who aren't called to live in Djibouti, you know, in terms of I think we should all always be going out of our way to meet new people, different people, strangers, marginalized people. Those three words, humility, curiosity, and delight, if those could inform all of our interactions with people we know and don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? I think, yes, I think that that's just so profound and so helpful. And I really appreciate that. And it's so interesting because I read I read one of your essays about the first thing someone told you is don't complain. Mm-hmm. 
And I just am so struck with your maturity that it's almost as if you've don't complain as like a grin and bear it, you know, kind of thing. And certainly that's where, <laughs> that's where I would be, but it's like, you've moved past that to like, look for what you can delight in and choose to delight in it and embrace it. And I just appreciate that so much. I really admire that. Yes, that's it. You can have two ways to not complain. One way is just to, like you said, grin and bear it. And the other way is to just look for something else. Turn the story Mm. around and find something good. Mm. So you talked a little bit about food in terms of being curious, you know, find out the culture behind it, you know, learn some of these folk tales, things like that. Has food helped you or, and not just food, like filling your stomach, but has food and the culture around food and the ways maybe it's brought you into community with people, has food helped you delight in your time there? Yeah. And has it made you humble? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> both ways, both things. Um, yeah. There's so much about food. When we yeah. first came again to Somalia, I had no idea how to cook from scratch. I knew how to make a frozen pizza. I knew how to open a jar of ragu with spaghetti sauce. Wow. But in Somaliland, we didn't have electricity all day. And so I mm-hmm. couldn't use a refrigerator. I had, you know, tomato sauce came from an actual tomato and I had no idea how right. to do that. So it was just really a huge learning curve. And I, again, I had to rely on the local people around me. Mm-hmm. I remember there's a, a certain kind of flatbread they make here. It's called Lahoh, mm-hmm. and they... They make it over these, traditionally over a charcoal fire stove kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they scoop out this batter that they keep for weeks and weeks on end, continuing to refresh in it, you know, each night. Mm. And they would take the batter and scoop it out with a half coconut shell and then a hole in the bottom of the coconut shell, which they would plug with a finger. And Mm -hmm. then they take that over the pan and sort of circle it around and move their finger away from the hole. So the batter comes out almost like you're making a pancake, but it ends up with sort of ruffles across the top. Wow. And it tastes really great. And they eat it with tea and they use it to scoop up meat, all kinds of different things. Yeah. And so I remember in Somaliland in particular, learning how to do this. Yeah. And of course I totally could not do it. <laughs> it sounds like quite a skill. It really demands a touch. Absolutely. And so my friends would just laugh and laugh and laugh at me as I would try. And I kept trying. And so it wasn't just about the food. It was about that experience of me really not having a clue what I'm doing. And then these rural Somali women teaching an American how to do something that for them, they've known how to do since they were, you know, children. And so it's, again, that experience of humility and being willing to really be a fool in that Mm -hmm. scenario. And then Mm -hmm. I would take it off the pan and it would be just so ugly and they would... (laughs) (laughs) roar and laughter at me. And so in ways like that, it helped me to build relationship. Food Mm -hmm. really did. Mm -hmm. And then coming to appreciate, you know, what they do have, because it it is so hard to get and make what they have. You just have a different appreciation for what exists. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that you write and speak at the crossroads of faith and culture. I think that's on your blog. I think that's Mm -hmm. where I got that. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. I love that. And then I started to really think about what's right there at faith and culture. And (laughs) I honestly do think, I I think it's got to be food is the number one thing, because I think faith and culture come together kind of on these holy days. They come together for celebrations, major celebrations, like weddings and stuff like that traditions maybe that are based on, again, either agriculture or changes in season, you know, and those are always defined by religion and culture. And food is always present 
at all of those, you know? And so I think even an event like Christmas or Easter or Passover, and those are all at least based on religion. And yet in every country and every culture, you're going to have traditional foods that are very different from one another. I think I'm thinking of Ramadan because we're in Ramadan right now. So I guess my question is, and tell me about some of the biggest faith events observed in Djibouti and the role of food in those events. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking even as you were talking about also the role that food plays in celebration and grief, like funerals. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Or even just as a welcome, someone brings you in, in the United States, someone might bring you banana bread if you just move into the yes. yes. someone's in the hospital and you have to bring them food. So yeah, the, the big food holidays around here would definitely be Ramadan. Yeah. Which before I knew about Ramadan, I would have found that statement, I guess an oxymoron or something. <laughs> right. It's about fasting, right? So it's not right. about food. <laughs> But I have really come to appreciate the food aspect in, in terms of even the food, the feasting part at the end of the day plays a yeah. part in the religious practice. So Ramadan, we've been now in it for just a couple of days here mm. as we're recording this. And from sun up until sundown, there's no food and no water. Right. Nothing goes into the mouth or into the body. And so even very devout people will spit so that they're not swallowing their own saliva during the day. Wow. And, and then at right at the time of breaking the fast, especially right now, it's kind of dangerous to be on the road, actually, <laughs> if it's almost time to break the fast because everybody wants to get home so badly so yeah. they can be ready. And you'll see people sitting along the street out in front of their homes or their workplaces, and they have right in front of them their bottle of water because they're so thirsty. It is so hot here. I can't and, imagine. Yeah. And then a, a pile of what they're going to break the fast with. And it's usually dates, watermelon, sambusa. Those are kind of the traditional things here. Mm. And then a little bit later, they will have a big, big meal at night. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, they'll have another big breakfast before the sun comes up. So very early. Mm -hmm. And then you know, the day again without food. So it's a lot of work, especially for the women, because mm -hmm. they're making big amounts of food for both breakfast and dinner. And so my previous understanding was that it's pretty easy because it's less food, but it's actually more food yeah. in the long term. And the, the feasting at the end of the day is part of recognizing for a Muslim their thankfulness and their gratitude for what they have. And yeah. so a lot of Somalis will tell me the fast is to remind them of the poor and to make them think of people who need food or need support. Yeah. And then the feasting is to make them thankful for what they do have. Mm. And I remember um, I had done a fast, an extended fast myself. I'm a Christian. And so mm -hmm. several years ago, I had just done a few days in a row of fasting. Mm -hmm. And my fast was only abstaining from food. So I was drinking water all throughout the day, but I wasn't eating any anything at all for several mm -hmm. days in a row. Mm -hmm. And my Somali friend was really uncomfortable with that. And eventually she told me, look, I think that the way you're fasting is sinful. Because really? you're yeah, you're supposed to break the fast at the end of the day. So you're reminded of gratitude. And it was really an interesting conversation because I had not considered that at all. In my faith tradition, each individual sort of is free to choose how they want to fast. I know yeah. some people who will just fast for one meal a week or, you know, two meals a day, different kinds of things. There's no set structure right. to it the way there is in Islam. And right. so we had a really great conversation about why I was fasting compared to why she was fasting, what the food part of it meant to us 
and how we were hoping to engage with God through that. And so that helped me understand in even more ways why the feast at the end of the day is so important. Yeah. So it lasts for 30 days. And at the end of the month, they'll have a big celebration. Uh, It's called Eid. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a three-day celebration and there's goats or sheep being sacrificed all over the place. And often the morning after Eid on my run, there's goat legs. And (laughs) 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 that's something that I see those mornings in particular. Um, See and and smell. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So that's a day of you know, massive celebration and eating and candy for the kids and visiting between families and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very curious about this because I'm thinking, actually, we have had a couple episodes now that we've talked about Ramadan, or at least it's come up. And I, I am very curious about the role of fasting. It's something that is almost every tradition requires fasting of religious tradition requires fasting of some kind, whether it's just from certain types of foods, whether it is an entire 30 days food and water, whether, you know, like you said, in the Christian tradition, it's more up to the devotee, how often they want to fast, but it's very clear. You know, I think Jesus has some words where he says these, this kind come out. He's speaking of like a demon possessed person. This kind of comes out only by prayer and fasting. Like he believes that prayer is more efficacious if it's associated with fasting. But most Americans don't observe fasting in their particular religious tradition, either as strictly or at all compared to many other parts of the world. In fact, I would say of those I know in the U.S., I would say the Muslims are the most strict because probably because Islam is the most prescriptive about it. And I'm curious if you think that fasting has, is fasting just a way to keep a religious tradition or is fasting actually effective in communing with God? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I feel like in some ways fasting in the U.S. has almost turned into a health and wellness type of thing. Yes. Absent, absent all the spiritual value of it. And yet it's kind of a religion in a way, health and wellness. Mm. Um, I think some ways, in some ways people can put, put that above faith or putting the faith in health and wellness in some way. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting turn that has come about, I think, of fasting. Mm. Absent, at least in my experience as a faith person, absent that experience of spirituality, mm-hmm. because I do think there's a, a deep spiritual value to it, mm-hmm. um, at least for me personally. And when I talk to my Muslim friends, of course, it's across the board of different people's various experiences, but there is something so visceral and foundational about food. We cannot mm-hmm. survive without it, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times Christians will tell me, I don't fast because I get really weak. I have that's the point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to say. Like, that's why you do it. Yes. So that you are reminded of your fallibility, your weakness, and that God is so much bigger than you. This is a really physical, tangible way of experiencing faith. I think in, in the West in particular, we over-spiritualize our spirituality in a way. We make mm-hmm. it sort of ethereal and out into the, the netherworld or something but we don't make it part of our actual body. Mm. And fasting is a way to make that so real. And another way that Muslims do it here is they pray and they pray with physically bowing and they experience Mm -hmm. their, in their physical movement. And I find that so important. Yeah. You know, I think about what Jesus said too. some, some ways that in my Christian upbringing, anyway, that people of faith take Jesus's words and twist them a little bit in that 
Jesus said, you know, go into your room and pray in private, or when you fast, don't make it visible to people. Mm-hmm. And so we have made it so private and so spiritual that I feel like we don't even do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just assume that maybe someone else is doing it, or that's for the spiritual warriors or spiritual, you know, not warriors, but powerhouses or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet I think the expectation by Jesus was that we would do it. Regular mm-hmm. people would do it. And and yeah, it's going to be hard. And I don't actually like the feeling of being hungry and weak. Mm-hmm. But what I do experience in that when I am fasting is a much more heightened awareness of God because it's intentional. You know, I'm not, I know that I am avoiding food because I'm trying to think about God. Mm-hmm. And so my mind and my spirit is turned more to spiritual things. And, and I do think there's value in that. It makes us humble. Mm-hmm. Back to that word again. It makes us recognize our humanness and that we're not as strong and infallible as we think we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can't speak necessarily for a Muslim because you're not Muslim, but from your conversations with your Muslim friends in Djibouti, is that the same value placed on fasting? As Rachel and I discuss Ramadan and fasting, I wanted to remind you of episode 48, titled A Wanderer Through Life and a Lover of Spice with Nadia Bandukta, where Nadia, as a Muslim woman, shares eloquently about why she observes Ramadan. She also talks a lot about her father, and you will fall in love with him. If you're interested in food and religion as a topic in general, you might also want to tune into episode 53, which is Food and Theology with Father Leo, the priest who beat Bobby Flay, or episode 64, a Passover episode with Hala Champ, Marissa Woshik. Okay, and here we are back to Rachel. You know, For the I same purpose. Say, I would say probably not, actually, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is interesting because, again, I... I had just assumed before that it, this is the spiritual experience, but mm-hmm. it's different. And so I was actually talking to someone yesterday about it and asking him if he felt closer to God when he was fasting. And he said, he kind of looked at me like that was a strange question. He didn't mm-hmm. really understand the question. And he said, no, I fast. So I remember the poor mm-hmm. for him. It was more about not necessarily identifying with the poor because he knew even the fact that he could fast was a privilege compared to someone who can't mm-hmm. eat. You know? mm-hmm. But his hunger made him feel more generous and compassionate towards the poor. Mm-hmm. And so that was just a, it was a very um, interesting conversation mm-hmm. in terms of how our focuses went. For me in fasting, it was my face was turned toward God and him in fasting. By the command of God, his face was turned more towards people who needed something. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that really interesting. Especially, I really like how you said that at the end there, by the command of God, his face is turned towards the poor. Mm-hmm. It kind of begs the question a little bit, how different is it? Like, what is faith without works? <laughs> mm, right. And I was just actually thinking of another verse from the Old Testament that's not the words of Jesus, where he, where God talks about he's not pleased with sacrifice and fasting just for over-spirituality. He wants people to think about the poor. <laughs> yeah. And so there is there is a sense in which it needs to be both together. And so in, in that way, I feel like my own faith as a Christian, has been really challenged and deepened and made more practical mm-hmm. by the Muslims around me. Because I'm reminded, oh yeah, when I'm fasting, I'm thinking about God. When they're fasting, they're thinking about the poor. I want to do both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a question about voluntary fasting. 
again, now we're going to use fasting in a really broad term, which just means kind of like abstaining, or I'm even going to broaden it to mean just not having access to, which is not really the definition of fasting. But what I'm trying to get to is, again, we have such a a surfeit (laughs) of food here. I mean, there's just food everywhere you go. Sometimes I just feel like I can't get through the day without my kids having access to like four or five different desserts. And part of that is because we love to bake (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you run out for something. It's like, oh, can we get ice cream on the way home? You know, Mm -hmm. and there's just food everywhere here. There's very, very, very quick food. And really, there's even we get into this issue of it's not necessarily that practical or economical to have a little side garden off of my kitchen, but I can grow a pot of tomatoes if I want and kind of delight in those. And I'm contrasting these things to Djibouti where, you know, again, you have like a bread man, you have an ice cream truck here that's kind of made in a factory. Nobody even knows where it is. You have a bread man, like he got up early and he made that, you know, with his starter that he fed overnight, you know, and you have a very, very precious tomato grown in the mountains. And I'm curious, again, we're talking about your interests and where faith and culture meet. I'm curious if you think that this just complete and total access to food, convenience food all the time versus in Djibouti, you know, you can't grow food where you live. It takes longer to make a meal. Do you think that affects A, faith and B, culture? So for me personally, it's different because for a lot of people here that we have enough, I have more than enough food to eat. You know, it's not something that I face personally or on a daily level. I want to be you know, real clear about that, that we're mm-hmm. not suffering. We're in very much a position of privilege when it comes to our right, food here. Right, right, But I do see people on a regular basis who don't have enough. And I have, I know people by name who come to my house on, we used to have a man come every Friday because he didn't have food. And so he would come for lunch every Friday. He knew that we would have enough for him. Mm. And so there are people that we are in active relationship with who don't have all that they need. Mm. Last week, my husband was helping a man who said, I'm hungry. And he said, then come to my house. We have food for you. So yes, I think in those ways, it's the need and the actual physical hunger is very much visible to us. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't feel that personal uncomfortable, what I feel more uncomfortable about is my abundance. Mm -hmm. And that contrast is also very evident to me. So I think in the U.S., it's not as easy to see. There are definitely hungry people Mm -hmm. in the U.S. as well, but the contrast is sometimes harder to see. Mm -hmm. And I think the assumption maybe is that there aren't hungry people Mm -hmm. there. That need for comfort and safety and security, I think it's all bound up in the American lust for consumerism and just to always have enough, always have more, actually more so that because we're afraid of not having enough at some point. Yeah. Yeah. You saw Um, that at the beginning of COVID. mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And then here, I remember actually at the beginning of COVID, I asked a friend, a local friend, are you worried about this? And she said, she looked at me again, like it was kind of a strange question. And she said, we know how to take care of each other. Mm. And then she gave me these examples of, you know, for example, if this family at the end of my street, if the father loses his job, we bring them food until he gets a new job. Or if someone's Mm. in the hospital, the hospitals here don't, all of them don't provide food. Mm. And so the neighbors or the family members, they have to bring food every day for every meal. And the whole community steps up to do that for that sick person or the sick family. Mm. And so in some ways that the need is so tangible and visible Mm -hmm. here. And at the same time, the community 
meeting that need is very visible and tangible as well. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I can even think about that on a spiritual level of mm-hmm. it's so beautiful and so communal and the mm-hmm. way that they are serving and blessing each other mm-hmm. just naturally like it overflows from how they live and how they are integrated in their daily lives. They're not all separated. And so in our small way, still pretty separate from that because of our culture and our own wealth, but we try to participate as we can in that circle of community blessing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I suppose that going back to your do good better, that gets complicated and that it wouldn't necessarily be appreciated if you just kind of reached in and provided for every need in a way that like eliminated the need for the community. Very complicated. And yes, that's exactly right. Because we could sometimes, we could actually give that man every meal for the week, not just on Fridays. But if we did that, and then if we ever left as a foreign family, where does that leave him in terms of his community? Who else is he going to be dependent on? Right. And yeah, it's, that's a really good point. And even during COVID, we were trying to figure out how do we get food to people? Because certain sections were of the city were closed off to each other. yeah. And so people who were day laborers could not get to their work or they couldn't get to a store. Yeah. And so we were trying to figure out how do we deliver food to them? And as foreigners, as white foreigners, if we went to those neighborhoods, it would just be so obvious the police would come in and say, you've broken the barriers, all those things. And so we actually partnered with a local organization that my husband is a part of. It's a group of researchers, independent researchers that are all local except for himself. And they said, we can get food into these areas if you can help us with the funding and so we were able to do that and then they instead of even delivering just food what they did was they contacted stores in those neighborhoods and said we have this much money for you when people come who can't pay for the food put them on this list and we will cover their expenses and so it was just a real way of keeping that store in function yeah yeah keeping the neighborhood rooted in their community and then and we were able to just take a backstage step or whatever and and let them do it and be blessed by it yeah yeah, yeah. You know, it was interesting. You said you said a little while ago, like we over spiritualize our spiritualness here in the US. And I'm thinking <laughs> again how we've made everything in terms of we we talk a lot in the US about this word community and being communal and uplifting and supporting each other. But it is interesting because it almost gets very intangible the way that we do that when everyone really does have enough. And so you want to talk about communal and a community when everyone physically has to give of their own food mm-hmm. and their time and making it. And I am, I, I keep going back to this time. And I just think in terms of food being a big part of a culture, it just seems like it must take so much time for Jibushan, I'm assuming mainly Jibushan women, Mm-hmm. to just cook, cook for themselves, cook for Ramadan, cook for their neighbors, cook to take food to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what is, it's true. That's very true that, that Lahore bread I was talking about earlier, the flatbread, mm. you can hear that at night because every household, there'll be a woman, whether it's a, a housekeeper maybe, or someone else in the family who's beating this bread with their hand. And wow. it makes this hollow flap, flap, flap in the bowl. And you can hear it echoing across the neighborhoods. And, it, you know, it could be easy to think, oh, there's one girl there beating that. It must be lonely for her. Mm. And it is a lot of work. And sometimes in some families it is lonely. But I've also seen how it's the whole group of women. It's not just it's not just the women in that one single house, household. In my house right now, it's myself and my husband and our 15-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. But in a Jerusalem house, it's grandma and aunts and cousins and neighbors mm-hmm. and people in from the bush that have brought their nomadic herds in town for a while and they're all together so the women 
they would be together. One of them is maybe beating that bread and one of them is chopping onions and one of them is preparing the stew. And so they're even in that moment of the really hard work and it's kind of constant, Mm -hmm. they're still together with each other and they're talking and telling stories. And it's really our first household here was a duplex and the family below me was a Jerusalem family and they would let me come and do that with them. Mm. So I'd bring my own knife and just chop the onions and listen to their stories. And it was Mm. really a good community experience for me. Mm. Yeah. You know, that is so interesting because here in the U S I mean, some of us love to cook and some of us really don't. It's just, it's just, and if you don't like to cook, you're kind of out because you have to eat three times a day, at least, you know, you have to feed your family. And that even here in the US that tends to fall on women, not in every family, but generally speaking. And if you don't love to cook, like I said, you're just kind of out, right? It's this task you have to do all the time that you don't like. But if you're not one of those kind of lucky people like myself who love to cook in Djibouti, you can still love so much about the experience. Maybe you're the storyteller, or maybe you're kind of an introvert that just likes to be on the shadows, but you feel that warmth and welcome. Or maybe you like, I don't know, to do one thing, but not the other. And so it still must be exhausting, Right. Yes. But that's an, an that's kind of an antidote, I guess, a, a small, it's a silver lining at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So you brought up your daughter, your 15-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. and you have two kids who are out of the house. Yes, they are 20 and 20 twins. Twins. Okay. So as we go back to thinking about this idea of food being at the crossroads of faith and culture, and we've really, like, we've we've definitely talked about it from the faith side, from the culture side, as an American, you said, you know, you don't you don't miss things like Starbucks anymore. You don't really have a desire to go get a jar of peanut butter necessarily. But when I think about these big events and these celebrations, I'm guessing there still must be an emotional tie. Like you can get over that <laughs> sickly sweet Starbucks <laughs> flavor, but there's an emotional tie to some of these things that we eat at these celebrations. How has that been for you being overseas for all these years? How has it been for you personally? And have you struggled at any point with when to approach a certain holiday and try to like scrounge together? You know, I think Thanksgiving is one that expats bring up a lot just because there's such traditional Thanksgiving foods for each region of the country. You know, how is that for you personally? But also, how do you decide, like, you know, we're going to really scrounge together and like try to figure out how to get a turkey or a pumpkin or something like that, just to give our kids a taste of this culture that is kind of theirs by birthright versus like throwing that all to the wind and saying, you know, you live in Djibouti, you are at some level Djiboutian, we're going to just embrace this for you. It seems like not only must that be hard for you, but it must be almost a burden on you in terms of which culture you're giving your kids as they're already caught in between cultures. Mm. Yeah. So it's been different throughout the years, but Mm. one thing that I feel like we've tried to do is to give them some grounding in their Mm. Americanness because they are American. They might live there in their future. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to root them in those cultural things too, and not have them be ignorant, totally ignorant to their own history. Mm. So Thanksgiving, it's true that that is one of the more challenging ones to actually get the food, <laughs> specifically turkeys. This year I was able to get one. Sometimes we just use rotisserie chickens or something. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes they taste better anyways. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I love about Thanksgiving actually is it's a really not, because it's a non-religious holiday, there's low stakes for people involved. Mm. And so we can invite our Jerusalem friends and they have, 
they're just so curious. Like, what are you doing for this food for? <laughs> you know, we, we, this year in particular, we had a lot of great conversations about race and colonial history and all kinds mm. of things like that. So it's not necessarily an easy holiday, but it doesn't come with some of the loadedness of religion that an Easter or a Christmas mm-hmm. might, mm. or even necessarily patriotism in July 4th kind of ways. Mm-hmm. And so we've really had a, a really fun time, including Jabushan friends in our Thanksgiving celebration. Mm. And we do the, we try to do as much traditional as we can, and then we play baseball. That's the Jewish <laughs> American tradition. A family started it about 20, 25 years ago, and now we've maintained it. And so, you know, for our kids, they think, oh, Thanksgiving is baseball. And they understand in America, they play American football. But And then we'll have a, a group of expats come together, actually from all over the world, not just Americans, mm-hmm. after the baseball game, and they'll all bring desserts. And so you get a very eclectic mix of different desserts. And so in some ways, actually, some ways that we really try to root things in particular on Thanksgiving, I have the actual electric knife blade that was my grandfather's before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And I got that after his death and I brought it back here with me. And so we use that still. And every year we bring it out and we talk about grandpa, my grandfather, who my kids remember a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even though it's not specifically food it's food adjacent i guess and just connecting them to their history mm-hmm. of not just nation but even family mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. other holidays like like easter we sometimes we'll talk about this is what's maybe happening in the united states on easter and this is why we don't do it that way like we have no chocolate on easter because wow. it's just it's a puddle of yeah <laughs> I guess I never thought about that. You could have hot chocolate. You could pour it into some milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we first year here, we tried to hide some chocolate candy around the house and it was a total disaster. <laughs> and so we talk about that, like, oh, this is funny. This is why we do it this way. And, you know, and so in stories and verbalizing, we talk about kind of what people might be doing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. on these holidays. And then my kids, they, they, they like both. They love sambusas. They love roasted goat and mm. um, rice and pasta and the things they make locally. And then especially the baguettes that I was talking about. That mm. My kids just bemoan the fact that in the United States, there is not a good <laughs> or, or French baguette. Oh, cause your, your older two are back in the U S yes. For college. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess they make baguettes the French way. Yeah, they have two kind of styles here now. One is very Djiboutian and one is very French, and they're both amazing. And you can literally buy them out of these baskets, you know, on the road. Mm-hmm. And so my kids miss that a lot. Mm-hmm. Even we found my son a baguette-scented candle. <laughs> that helps a little bit, but... <laughs> to ease his homesickness. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. I've never heard of that. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, we're wrapping up. Do you mind if I go for a few more minutes? No, it's great. Okay. Thank you. So tell me about this recipe. I, Rachel, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Iskudehkaris. <laughs> okay. Just say one more time. Iskudehkaris. Okay. So can also, what languages do you speak and what languages do Djiboutians speak? The official languages in Djibouti are Arabic and French. Okay. I speak French and Somali. And then okay. the people on the street, they would be speaking Somali mostly in the okay. schools and government and hospitals and things would be French. Okay. Okay. So tell me why you chose this recipe. So it means cook it all together, mm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of just the one pot thing. You throw everything in. And it was one of the first things that I learned in Somalia because it was 
so easy. You could just take kind of whatever you have. I mean, there's a recipe for it here, but you can throw in other things or various amounts of things and just cook it all together. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a real classic Somali dish here. Can you tell me about the person who taught you to make it? You know, I'm not sure exactly who taught me this one specifically, but there was a woman, Halimo, and she was the one in Somaliland who was teaching me how to make that flatbread. Yeah. And she taught me how to make pretty much all my early Somali dishes. And so mm. she she showed up our first day in Somaliland and she said, hello, my name is Halimo and I'm here to be your housekeeper. Oh, and we, I, I said, great. I really need a lot of help. I have no idea how to go to the market. I have no idea where anything is. And every foreigner and even local people, they all have housekeepers. Yeah. And even the housekeepers often have a housekeeper. It's a way of engaging economically in the community. Yeah. And so she just became a real shepherd for me into the culture and into food, mm. helping me feed my family. Mm. Did you cook together regularly? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And did she, are there any <laughs> specific tricks she taught you about the market? That must have been an overwhelming experience. Yeah, especially when I couldn't speak any language, you know. But yeah. she did teach me, it was it could be really challenging there to find eggs. Here in Djibouti, oh. it's not difficult. But there it was. And so she taught me how to find them, like what to look under at, on women's little, they'd have a mat on the ground. So look under this, and there might be some eggs. Or, <laughs> you know, which ladies would give me a good price or who... You know, the meat, you could actually buy, you would buy the meat hanging from these slabs, or you could buy it ground up by a lady who would grind it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and she knew, you know, which ladies would actually wash their grinding machines more consistently than others and things like that. Wow. Wow. What an experience. What an experience. And you learned, it's not like you just had to learn to cook Jabushan food or Somali food. You didn't know how to cook at all, really, before you went. <laughs> I didn't feel like I did, No. That's incredible. I, mean, I could follow a recipe, right? But I didn't mm-hmm. have any particular skills. Mm. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Again, I could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. This has just really been delightful to think about and talk about food with you. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. So tell everyone where they can find you and about your books. You can find me at Do Good Better on Substack or even just search my name, Rachel Mm -hmm. Pye Jones. So even my name actually is about food. My my (laughs) It's pie. So you pronounce it the way that you would apple pie or 3.14. Yeah. Uh, But with an H at the end. So Rachel P-I-E-H Jones. Correct. Yes. You can find me on my website, which is also Rachel Pye Jones, all the social media. That's where I'm at. I do have several books, two cookbooks in particular. One is called Djiboutilicious. Mm-hmm. And that one is only available on a pay hip. You can find it on my website. Yeah, the other one I, is, it's called the Expat Cookbook. And it's it kind of circled around how expats maybe order their food, not in the sense of soups and meats and desserts, but what can you travel with on an airplane? What can you send someone in a box? Things like that. Yeah, I downloaded the Djiboutilicious and I looked through the expat one. And one, I was surprised how much you do have access to in Djiboutilicious. Yeah, in Djibouti, because of the French influence, we have quite well supplied grocery stores, especially now, more than before. Yeah, and I was impressed with there was just so much practical knowledge in the expat cookbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and then I have two other books. One is a biography of a woman who worked 
and lived here for 34 years. She worked with Somalis who had tuberculosis, developing treatment mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And my most recent book just came out last week. It's called Pillars, How mm -hmm. Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. And it, it really just explores some of the things we talked about, like with fasting mm -hmm. in particular and ways that my experience of their Islamic faith has really encouraged and deepened my own Christian faith. Yeah, and I'm very much looking forward to reading that personally also. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, Rachel. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've loved it. It was absolutely my pleasure. Have a great day. I hope your electricity comes back. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, Bye. Thank you again to Rachel for this wonderful interview. You can find all of her contact information, links to her latest book, Pillars, and some of her previous writing, and her Isku Dehkaris recipe in the show notes for this episode. We loved this dish, which featured rice, potatoes, lots of spices, lamb, you can use beef, carrots, hot sauce. <laughs> and funny enough, bananas on top. And I've updated the recipe with a couple of questions that I had to send Rachel afterwards, specifically about the rice. And I should have asked this in the interview. Also, again, if you're curious to hear more about Ramadan and fasting or about food and religion generally, I've also linked in the show notes to the three episodes that I mentioned earlier on. Finally, I just said this a second ago, but I have read Rachel's latest book, Pillars, and I do highly recommend it to anyone who'd just like to dive deeper into this issue of looking at your own religion, your own belief systems from a lot of different facets. As always, this podcast is about you and the community, and I would love to hear more guest ideas from you. If you would like to support the podcast, which would mean the world to me personally, the very best thing you can do is forward this episode to a friend who would like to hear it. Obviously, that would help Rachel too. And finally, if you're so moved to leave a review, that always helps. Also, they can be a little complicated to figure out what to do on each device. So to make it really easy for you, you can just go to lovethepodcast.com slash the storied recipe. That's lovethepodcast.com, the storied recipe. It will magically know exactly how you can leave a review on your own device and you can just do that. It will help the podcast. Thank you all so much and have a great week, my friends.